0: You can talk about film With a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all By box office appeal But for once in your life
1: Be real!
0: No, I do love you. And there's something very important that we need to do as soon as possible.
1: What's that, Chance?
0: Pod. How was that line reading? It was great. I felt pretty committed to that, as I am to the podcast you're listening to right now, which is, of course, your movie reviewing and reappraising genre-hopping film podcast, Be Real on the Playlist Podcast Network, of which we're thrilled to be a part, brought to you by California College of the Arts' Writing MFA program. I'm Chance Solon-Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. As always, check out the other cool shows on the Playlist Podcast Network, uh, The Discourse, Indie Beat, The Fourth Wall, Adjust Your Tracking. But Noah and I are here, as always, to talk about three movies of a similar genre. And I feel like we've designed a pretty good one today for Eyes Wide Shut's 20th anniversary. Noah, you want to tell them about it?
1: I don't know if we find a really good one. We found a very specific one, which is sort of the goof on this podcast that Hollywood... That's what Hollywood, good is for us. Yeah, Hollywood comes up with these like weird, trope genres that they continue to make over and over again. And this one this week is taking a famous peak of their career hollywood couple and putting them putting them into a movie about being married and maybe not not in a good way and then ultimately these couples some of them months afterwards get divorced yeah so this week we're talking eyes wide shut with nicole kidman and tom cruise as chance talked about 20 years since this movie came out. Some people think it's really dated and thought it was pretty stupid when it came out. Some people will argue that this movie was super prescient in the way these like rich secret sex societies work. Um, You're
0: referring to our guest who's coming up, Lala Shapiro from New York Magazine, who wrote an awesome piece about seeing this movie like a hundred times. And then she has quite a read on it. So that's coming up. What are other two films?
1: We're then going to jump back to 1966 the Golden Oldie, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, and Richard Burton.
0: Very nice. That was good.
1: Thank you. Uh,
0: which is currently on Netflix.
1: Which is on Netflix. Totally able to watch. Uh, I think the only one you have to spend money on here is Eyes Wide Shut. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to buy it a hundred times, though. Or if you're going to plan to watch it a hundred times, maybe you just like spend the extra money and buy it.
0: Do watch it in a Venetian mask, though. I would recommend.
1: Yeah. But then the whole thing's going to kind of look like the keyhole shot from the third movie, <laughs> By the Sea.
0: Yeah. Uh, which is on HBO if you want to watch that. Afterward, I'm yeah. talking about it. Who knows? Uh, but that, what is yeah, that? It's Angelina
1: Jolie and Brad Pitt, the movie that they allegedly made on their honeymoon, set in France, actually shot in Greece or something.
0: But we're going to start with the, the main event, which is Eyes Wide Shut, the entrancing but not all that thrilling sex thriller from the year 1999, directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Cruise as Dr. Bill Harford, and Kidman playing his spouse, Alice. It is essentially a movie that hinges on cocky, allegedly well-to-do Tom Cruise character, believing he has his wife and all of life just, you know, in his sights, completely pegged, and then Alice hits him in the movie with like a double dose of sexual fantasies that just send him spiraling out into the night into these weird uh, morasses of power and sex while Kidman is oddly sidelined at home as a kind of sexual oracle figure to be returned to. Let's go. I have seen one or two things in my life,
1: but never
0: Never anything like this. They
1: did a bad, bad thing. They did a bad, bad thing. They did a bad, bad thing. Maybe did a bad, bad thing. Here yeah, we love someone so much you
0: thought your little
1: heart was going to
0: break into.
1: Stanley Kubrick's final film. Stanley Kubrick didn't see the release of this movie. Right. Though he spent the better part of, what, 15 years it, like, pre-producing this movie and then almost two years physically shooting a movie that's like not that long or complicated seemingly to shoot.
0: Uh, but the final result is both.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, the final result is the work of a madman (laughs) at the end of his career uh that looks like it took like 20 years to gestate but what has popped out is totally bizarre Uh, your mask is your mask
0: is slipping for how you feel about this movie but that's all
1: right do you remember like the campaign around this movie when it came out i feel like i was just on the cusp of like being aware of like adult movies as a nine-year-old no Okay, well, I'm a little older than you. Yeah. But I remember reading or seeing something in, like, People magazine or something in a doctor's waiting room that said that this movie was about two therapists who were, like, secretly sleeping with their patients. Like, that was what the like the pitch around Hollywood was while this movie was in London pretending to be New York yeah. shooting. And that's what everyone thought it was until like weeks before it came out, and then there's Kubrick all this. Kubrick cons-
0: demanded like crazy secrecy around the set, right?
1: Not only secrecy, but the, them to like put out fake materials for it, so people would get the wrong idea about it. Oh wow! Which is totally bizarre. Yeah, uh, but Stanley Kubrick, of course, uh, The sure. Shining, 2001: uh, A Space Odyssey. Who Dr. am I Trangelo, talking to? Paths
0: of Glory. Well, you like people a, know these. You know yeah, these. You things. know who Stanley Kubrick is. Uh-huh.
1: I don't know. I mean, I was talking to. Lu- I mean, Lucy's not a cinephile by any means, but she really didn't know who he was. So it was good to go back through his his oeuvre and see. I mean, but just classics. Lucy, not a big Barry Lyndon head. No, I don't think I've ever seen Barry Lyndon. I haven't either. So
0: what was you? What is this the first time you've you've seen it? I've seen it. On television one time, which is the dumbest way to have seen. What is it
1: about? Fifteen minutes long or something? <laughs> have
0: seen eyes wide shut. Yeah, it's just them dancing at the beginning, and then uh, infomercial knives comes on. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh
1: man. Yeah. How about you? I rented this movie on DVD from the Love Library, circa 2009, and watched it. In my room ends. You know, much like the interview later somehow I got sucked into this movie and ended up watching it like four or five times and like not quite knowing what to make of it. Right. And I mean, I'm sort of charmed by that kind of film. I think this movie has a lot in common. Did you ever see, um, after hours, the Martin Scorsese movie set in Soho? I never have. It's It's very similar to this. And it has that sort of like 1970s sort of like, whoa, like, where are we? Like, who are these crazy characters? What does this say (laughs) about society kind of thing? And I have a soft spot for like those kind of meandering weirdo movies. But it's also a movie that's so quickly and clearly a movie that sort of exists in this weird Hollywood space. Of when the creative people get exactly as much money as they want for some weird passion project. Sure. And like this total like monstrosity of, I mean, this is, movie is what, two hours and 39 minutes long? Yeah. And I mean, it's hard to get around that for what the movie like actually becomes.
0: Mm, mm-hmm.
1: Like this movie's based on a short story about this like Jewish doctor who after like a weird anti-Semitic run-in, uh, like decides that he like is going to admit to his wife that he like would like to sleep with like a young girl and she gets pissed and he goes out and then a very similar sort of him going to this orgy plot unfolds. Mm -hmm. But like what's appealing about that story And, like, why spend so much of the back, like, 15 years of your career thinking about that and then spending so much time to shoot it?
0: Well, the way that Lila Shapiro frames it coming up is just, like, this sort of, like, eternal question between, like, men and women, and specifically, like, husbands and wives um, about monogamy and sexual fantasy and whatnot. But I think what's interesting, you talk about, like, all the time it gestated, is that in the 70s, he planned to do it as a comedy, Starring for a while, maybe Woody Allen, and for a while, then Steve Martin. And I think what you're left with then is, in the final version, is a super interesting, like needling, provoking meditation on these two people, on Cruise and Kidman, and maybe especially
1: Cruise. I think these movies also hang in the fact too that like you have to be obsessed with the couple at the center of them. Like I tried to watch uh, Shanghai Surprise earlier with <laughs> um, Madonna and Sean Penn, and it's yeah. like I f- found the two of them just and like the idea of them as a couple so reprehensible by like ten or fifteen minutes in, I was like, I may just pop on by the Sea again. It was on HBO. Right. But this one I feel like is interesting because off the bat, like if you can't buy into that, like Tom Cruise is like the fast talking doctor slash lawyer slash race car driver slash whatever, who's ultimately like the moral higher ground than everybody else. If you're giving that up, what else does Tom Cruise have to offer you other than his like, paparazzi-laden marriage to Nicole Kidman, and that's not that interesting.
0: Uh, I think it's pretty fascinating because what I think what he does is he kind of casts Cruise in a weird way, especially in the third act, in the normal Cruise role. He's oh, like this doctor who needs to learn something, but he makes the quote unquote Kubrick, I mean, makes the quote unquote normal Cruise role so strange and the surmount- surrounding movies so strange that I could see watching this and like never believing Tom Cruise as, you know, Daniel Caffey ever again. And then but- and then two years later they're divorced. The other thing and- is that all of these relationships, an interesting commonality, is that all of them last about a decade. They all started on movie sets. We've got Cleo- we have Cleopatra, Days of Thunder, and Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and they all kind of come back around in this way to where you look at the couples, and in you know, there's gonna be a lot of armchair psychology done in this episode, but like, why did you return to the scene of the crime? Is that part of kind of the is that part of the relationship? Is that is it a last ditch effort? Is it where you feel most at home? Why? Well, all
1: these movies, too, involve these two people moving to a foreign place. For this one, it's London, just to to stand in for New York for some reason, but to be totally isolated mm. away from their like contacts in either New York or L.A. and shoot this movie for an obscene amount of time. So you're like putting your marriage and your family and your thing. It's like this endless vacation and we're filming it. Yeah. And, well, let's see how happy you are. Like, we're <laughs> going to have all the cameras rolling. We'll give you beautiful outfits and beautiful scenery. But, like, how like how's it going? Well, I
0: knew, we should talk about, like, what Kubrick, like, did to them, allegedly.
1: Which is... Oh, yeah, he would, like, do therapy with them and, like, spread horrible lies and things and then wouldn't allow them to, like, talk to each other on set except, like, in their characters.
0: Right, and would do the, you know, the the sort of... The joke that you made earlier about Nicole Kidman's kind of, like, inner cut fake sex scene with the sailor, which was only occurring in Tom Cruise's head, was, like, a crazy, like, multi-day shoot, and then he was like, you can't tell Tom about, like, what was even
1: filmed. Yeah, they Um, wouldn't show him the footage.
0: And then... I think it bears repeating. They filmed for four hundred days.
1: <laughs> right, they're hundred days. It's the holds the Guinness Book World Records longest continuous film shoot ever. That's insane.
0: And when would that ever be broken? With like how much is done in post these days? This record, this could be like the Nolan Ryan no hitter record. Uh, certainly,
1: I think it's interesting because if you look at some of the trivia about this and some of the narrative behind the making of this, allegedly the longest scene, well, let's talk about the plot of the movie, but allegedly the longest scene is that the conversation in the billiard room between Sidney Pollack and Tom Cruise. Right. Apparently that took four months to shoot. Yeah. What is, I mean, a long scene, but not like an elaborate scene. It's two people talking.
0: But it totally typifies the rhythms of this movie, which is the feeling that both the actors and the people are breaking down. If you look at the speed at which that scene starts, they walk in the room and Sidney Pollock's like, hi, Bill. I mean, how are you? What's going on? He's like, it's good to see you, Ken. And by the by the middle of the scene, they're both just leaning on the billiards table, sighing endlessly. And Tom Cruise is speaking at this cadence. So you mean to tell me that nothing happened. And that comes about, I think, because they shot it for, you know, however long.
1: 400 days. It's <laughs> um, so good. So, yeah, this guy's a physician and he has all these, like, rich clients, mm-hmm. these rich patients. And he sort of bounces between them in a socialite kind of sometimes using it for his own advantage kind of way. Right. To end up at this orgy that's weirdly gothic and then people end up dead and missing. And it's very like, you know, Lynchian almost. But then all of that like, doesn't
0: also the, the final result of that, whether that's true or false, doesn't really end up mattering, which is another kind of like bizarre feeling. Um,
1: it's interesting. This movie came out in the same year as American psycho. Cause I think that they have similar, kinds of like here's a movie that's allegedly saying about something about the upper class but then it's just going to devolve into these goofy scene jokes Hmm. about this man losing his mind
0: and also same year that Cruz made magnolia he was really on this grind of like working with top flight directors to play the sort of Either t- inherently transgressive Or just positioned in transgressive ways Like he'll never play those characters again We've talked about Mission Impossible Fallout Ethan Ethan Hunt is like There's nothing in that Guy, like intentionally, right? It's all been written out of him so Absolutely
1: Yeah. There's nothing funnier than seeing I mean, I think Tom Cruise His career is summed up in the new Top Gun Maverick trailer Where sure. Ed Harris is just like you should have been a lot bigger or fired, but you were neither. You're just here. (laughs) And Tom Cruise just like stares back and he's just like, you know, life's crazy, man. Have you seen Going Clear? I have. And I've read the book. Do
0: Do you remember the part in the doc where Cruise is talking about Kidman and he's like, have I ever like met a suppressive person, which is like the Scientological term for like, you know, non believers, or like the people you're supposed to stay away from to keep your lizard energy high or whatever? And he like lets out this big laugh and is clearly talking about Nicole Kidman. Um
1: Right. I remember and this, that. And her kids allegedly too or not allegedly, but her kids famously said in an interview in some magazine that She's an S P. Yeah, that if that when asked about their relationship with her, they say, "Oh, she's a fucking sp," and it's like, "Oh Which no, is, these,
0: oh my god, these kids
1: are all going to the orgy. They've uh, really sold right. out to the other side." Well, that's what's so weird about this movie. It's because it's about Tom Cruise not being able to connect with Nicole Kidman because of this weird, like, religious sex cult yes! that's happening. So the inability of Tom Cruise to be normal
0: because the movie won't let him is such an interesting way of tying his shoelaces together. A sex worker basically picks him up and he asks her when she's like, so what do you want to do? He's like, well, what do you recommend? And it's like, the movie is (laughs) What's good here? (laughs) The movie is forcing these words into his mouth about not knowing what to do when people desire him because deep down, he's as strange as this world.
1: He is a stranger to this world. He, it's, it's interesting, too, because he's almost as like a, an actor asking, like, what is it I'm supposed to do in a scene with a prostitute? I've oh, 100- never been in one before.
0: <laughs> 100%. Although risky business, but still. Right. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's it for sure. But he's never
1: been in a scene that's asked him to, like, stray from his wife so flagrantly. Very true. Yeah. I think the funniest scene of the movie is just the total breakdown that Tom Cruise has when he's returning, uh, the tuxedo and the cape and the mask, and he's just like, uh, "Mr. Milken, I thought you were going to call the police." <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> when the two the two guys come out of the back, but also
0: the thing with Milich and his daughter is, or Milich, sorry, is like among the. There are certain things in this movie I guess I'll like give away my point now. I feel like the reason that this movie is so uh, you know, unlikely returnable to is that it feels kind of like haunted with these things in some ways. You can kind of the same thing with the Shining. Like you sort of feel the ghost in the machine like if I were about to go on a vacation with my partner, as happy as we were I still wouldn't watch The Shining the night before Because, like, something might happen And I feel like the underbelly Of this movie that's so much Like in the subconscious Is incredibly disturbing What is Millich doing with his daughter? It's like one well, of the Well, that's the
1: thing I, mean, I feel like the, the, the contemporary culture Is currently reckoning with That sort of 90s thing Where it's like anything could be made an arrangement of yeah. Like anything Mm -hmm. can be like fixed. Yeah. And it's so like, Oh, like you're selling your, your daughter. Like everything has a price. Like everyone has their thing that they're willing to, well, I won't open the store. I won't get out of bed for a hundred dollars over the asking price, but I'll do it for two.
0: You're right. So that guy does the same thing that he did with those two guys and his daughter. We saw it happen. Yeah, they and
1: they got to the right amount of money.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oof.
1: Ooh. But that's the same thing that happens every level that he interacts with this system. Right. Like that's the same thing that the the pool room scene acts as is yep. Sidney Pollock telling him, "We came to it. We came to an arrangement. Like everything's fine." Yeah.
0: So our rating system, real quick for the uninitiated. Uh, has two parts. The first part, the first good or bad, refers to uh, intellectual quality or technical quality. The second is a little more subjective. It's uh, watchability, rewatchability, whether five times or a hundred. Uh, am I coming back to this? Um, so, Noah, where do we fall with eyes wide shut?
1: Oh, it's tough to say because I think the our our rating system would naturally put this movie in a bad bad Mm. a because it's such an indulgent fatty movie that could have been like, I think a lot more interesting, but it, it does have good stuff in it and it is prescient to the world we live in. But there's just something about the filmmaking. Like I'm talking about the technical filmmaking, like New York doesn't look like New York because it's not, it's a studio like these actors are weird around each other because like they're not good in this movie together, you know, Mm -hmm. like weird. But I mean, Sidney Pollack's great. And there's a lot of good stuff, but there's also like, I don't know. And it's also really long, but it has plenty of meat on it to like go back to. (laughs) So it's either a good, good, or it's a bad, bad. I think that's a
0: fascinating way of framing it. You go. I think it, I I actually like the way you framed it. I think you I think you do kind of have to be like all in or like or no. You have to either be like I am in for the dream state or like I'm a rational person. I set this aside forever. And I think that watching it and talking to you and talking to Lila, I think I think this is what happens when you adopt trauma. Uh, what is it called? Like trauma novella or whatever. I think I think it not looking like New York. Like weirdly works And I think the fact that you can See that these two people Are like not going to be together Even though the movie Ends with this sort It's so funny to me and I talked to Lila about this That like how Provocative the last line of the movie is Like her saying We should fuck soon husband Um, But also That that's this movie's kind of like Weird play for these people back Toward normalcy that means like allegedly we're going to go back to the table where I sit with the kid and like right in front of the, I can't believe it's not butter. But the way this movie expresses it is by saying we should fuck.
1: <laughs> I think it's a good, good. That's sort of all these movies. It sort of posits the question of what is your kink on one end at the, at the outset. And that if these couples are to stay together, it's well, how can we like both act out our fantasies without hurting the other one and is that possible yeah it has that taste of i know all this weird shit happened to you and you're like fantasizing about all this stuff but like use that energy and like stay home right Right. um i don't know i think it what it is as an artifact is good yeah and what i think Watching it and discussing a movie like this twenty years after it is it was released is a a worthwhile uh occupation, but I think it's bad, bad hmm
0: for all the things you've said,
1: yeah, I don't think it really comes together. I don't think it makes a lot of sense. I think you're watching it because of what you're bringing. You're bringing this couple and this famous director with you when you watch this movie, seeing what, like, oh, people I know and like, what did they do? And then you're kind of like, huh. But yeah. if you didn't know any of these people, like, it's not a well-made movie. That's nor fair. is it, like, a watchable movie.
0: You're saying that doing it for this purpose made it much better than it would be otherwise.
1: If you host your own reappraisal <laughs> podcast and you're looking for movies to reappraise, this is a fun one to do. Right. If you are an average or even above average moviegoer, and you're like, huh, should I spend two ninety nine to watch Eyes Wide Shut with my wife who we're having a rocky few months, <laughs> I do not think this is a good movie to watch.
0: Yeah, especially if you believe that you're sure of all her sexual fantasies.
1: You're not. You are and not. And then you will think of them in black and white.
0: That's not enough Eyes Wide Shut for you, is it? Because we got to talk to Lila Shapiro. I uh, chatted with her earlier this week. She's seen this movie a hundred times. Quick word from our sponsor, and we'll get right to it.
1: This podcast is brought to you by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means that you can write and paint, Write and design, and write and make a film. You can also write and write. Look for their MFA faculty member Tom Barbash's novel, *The Dakota Winters*, out from Echo, and their alum Adam Namet and podcast favorites, *We Can Save Us All*, out now from unnamed press. For more information, open an internet browser and type in www.cca.edu/writingmfa. Well,
0: I guess today is a senior reporter at New York Magazine. Lila Shapiro joins Be Real. Lila, hello and welcome.
2: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: I am very excited to talk about this piece that you published earlier in the month, um, which has two major components. One is a very insightful reappraisal of Eyes Wide Shut, in which you argue that a movie that was accused a lot of being kind of naive about sexual politics is not— and then the other revelation is that you've watched it a hundred times. And this all <laughs> this feels like it should be almost two separate interviews, but I think we could probably try to do it in one. Um,
2: well, so, it's funny that you say that because also it definitely could have been two separate pieces. Sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, you had a, you had a lot to do. I imagine I was excited to talk about it because I was just like, "This is the kind of piece that I feel could have been probably twice as long." And let's see what was behind it. You know. I love that. But I actually wanna start with something. When I reached out to you and you were kind enough to say yes to come on the show, um, you published the piece on July 1st. And then I think on the 6th, uh, the Jeffrey Epstein stuff um, came out again and he was arrested. What did you, I mean, it was totally in keeping like thematically with your piece, but like how have your last two weeks been like (laughs) thinking about this movie that like clearly has occupied your brain so much?
2: (laughs) I mean, I've been captivated, of course, um, by the revelations about Epstein. Um, I mean, I think the thing that really has really caught my eye, it was also a piece that was in New York um, that was basically different uh, experts um, weighing in that they think that he was blackmailing people. And that's how he was making money as a hedge fund guy Mm -hmm. Um, and that part really made me think about the, the mask in the final scene um and just sort of the role that these sex parties obviously played in his you know accruing and and keeping power yes obviously on some level i felt like it confirmed my theory like the idea that at the time people were saying like this is so quaint and absurd who who would ever have a party like this yeah obviously well like jeffrey epstein was at that point having this party um but yeah but then you know, Sidney Pollock's role too is like there's some, you know, echo between him and, and Epstein that just feels kind of like hard to look away from.
0: Without a doubt, the line you specifically singled out where he says to Bill, you wouldn't sleep so well if you knew who was in that room, um, also seems to very, uh, I mean, implicitly, at least. I mean, I don't know what what facts there are, but definitely seems to apply to the Epstein case as well, right?
2: Definitely. Like, maybe Bill Clinton. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's so dark to me that, like, he might not have even really been rich, you know?
0: That's really interesting. Yeah, because, okay, so I'm kind of trying to wrap my head around that theme then. If, there, if he didn't, if Epstein was not ultra, ultra wealthy, then it's just sort of like power regenerating out of power, creating like a tighter cloak and a tighter morass of... Um, yeah, that's really uh, creepy and horrifying. And, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's seems...
2: exactly like how I've been thinking about it. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> so,
2: Lila, it, it may be
0: an inelegant transition, but like, let me flip here. So you came to watch this movie... As many times as you did because it was interesting well you you talk to writers all the time um they lots of people like write to mood music they'll get obsessed with like an album or something when they're when they're writing a book is it fair to say like this was your version of that while you were um like a creative kickstart while you were working on a novel
2: yes i mean it began (laughs) i had another version of the piece where i talked about this more that i trimmed out but it began when uh, my husband was gone for a month on a reporting trip in Alaska. Mm -hmm. And we'd recently been married. And I think it was like the first extended amount of time that we were apart from each other. Um, and I watched it and in the book, the novel that I was working on and I'm still working on, um, I, there's a, there is a party scene. Um, And with an orgy element that's not, you know, not really the same, but related in some ways. So I had seen it when it came out in theaters and I hadn't really, I didn't really remember feeling like that strongly about it at the time. I mean, I, I, I liked it, but it hadn't like really captured me then. But I, at the beginning of, you know, this time, this month that my husband was away, I start, I turned to it, you know, kind of for inspiration about this party scene. I watched it all the way through, realized that I was obsessed with it. And then (laughs) this, you know, constantly, uh, I would have it on my projector, you know, just all day long, uh, basically that entire month. (laughs) And I would be writing mostly through that time. So it would be in the background, but like there would be certain scenes that I would then, you know, always sort of tune into, um, Uh as they, as they were coming up. Um, and sometimes I would just watch it all the way through again anyway. Uh,
0: Sure. When you really needed to not write. (laughs)
2: Uh Yeah, it was a really good, it was a good companion. And then whenever you go back to it, you know, there's just something new to think about, which is true of like, I guess, probably a lot of Kubrick's movies. I mean, I have seen like Shining like a dozen times or something, Mm. Um, but I couldn't have imagined like watching The Shining like a hundred times, like in the same way. Like there's something about the mood of of Eyes Wide Shut that I just find like, I mean, yes, it's very dark, but there's also something like that's so like dreamy and almost like soothing about it too.
0: Yeah. Well, so I'm only like 98 and a half times behind you, I think. <laughs> um, but well, so I wanted to actually ask you this because you're so you're so familiar with it. Does it feel like scenes will start, and the movie has very long scenes, right? A lot of them are like 10, 15 minutes. They like start at a certain normal clip and they slow down. Like people literally start talking much more slowly. Mm. It was like my observation watching. And that totally feels like, like entrancement could result from that yeah. as the viewer.
2: That does kind of ring a bell. I mean, if I think about like the, like the opening party. Yeah. When like Nicole's with like the Hungarian and Tom is with like the two girls, like the, yeah. Like those conversations like become so slow and drawn mm-hmm. out. Like, if you think about her saying, like, to the rainbow, it feels like that yeah. line <laughs> yes. comes on after, like, <laughs> it's like a minute long or something.
0: Yeah. Um, and the Hungarian guy is, like, watching Bella Lugosi on 0.5 speed or something. <laughs> um, yeah. So, Lila, walk me through, I, I'm, I'm curious about this, like, I mean, you don't have to break it down by exact numbers, but a movie like this with such depth, can you think of something that you got on, say, time 10 that you never would have gotten on time one or maybe something on time 70 that you never would have gotten on time 10 like were there like major kind of revelation points for you
2: yeah i mean i i think part of what i wrote about in the in the essay was something that was a slow observation to build i mean because i had been I, you know, I had, I read that, uh, the piece in the New Yorker, um, from 1999. Yeah. The, the, right. The essay, um, by Frederick Raphael. Um, and I, and I had been very like captivated by that particular exchange of dialogue between them about, um, you know, hadn't things changed and Kubrick saying like, I don't think so. And like Raphael, saying like i don't think so either <laughs> um, and like and i had thought about that and i hadn't really it had definitely stuck with me but i really wasn't sure what he meant exactly you know like and it is like tom cruise is he has this incredibly naive performance and he's so in the dark um from the very beginning like if you think about just the opening when he he's like where's my wallet and like you know, Nick, like, it's on the bedside table. Like, what's the babysitter's name? Like, she just yeah. told him. Like, and and there was something about that that I, you know, had just been sort of sitting with, but I didn't really, it, it didn't really occur to me, like, until, like, I had seen it many times that it was this, like, to see it as this, like, commentary on naivete. That, like, mm-hmm. that, that Tom Cruise's naivete is this, like, almost aggressive choice that he's making and that that's part of the point of the movie and and like over time i became like like the orgy scene is like the least interesting part to me um Mm -hmm. in in a lot of ways like the stuff that i really get like hung up on or like you know nicole's speech um like is one of the things that like i will always watch her like if you men only knew like that speech um like, yeah. the conversation with Pollock at the end, like, that's always something that I've watched again and again and again. And, like, I guess it's just sort of seeing how those two things fit together um, is one of the things that I feel like I got after watching it so many times.
0: I want to ask, then, about kind of the the reappraisal you're doing. Because um, part of your essay, of course, is that some critics in 1999 um, accused the movie of, you know being too wide-eyed and innocent like how could just this like revelation about um alice having sexual fantasies push bill to such lengths um does it seem like people were conflating naivete with innocence in a way that you don't agree with
2: that's how critics were writing about it like this idea that it was about like the problem with the movie is that like Kubrick hadn't left the house in 30 years. Like that he was innocent and that like, then Tom Cruise was an extension of like Kubrick's own innocence. Right. Like they were both shocked by things that are, you know, actually not shocking um, because they're out of touch with like with the real, like the real world and how sexual everything really is all the time. Right.
0: They'd never, they'd never seen wild things as yeah. you said.
2: Yeah. How can he be surprised when wild things is happening right now in the same year? Um, Yeah, I do think so. And I think that that's like kind of part of the problem, because with uh, the problem with, you know, with the world. (laughs) Yeah, it's one of the problems that like Kubrick, I think, is is talking about um, in the movie. Um, I feel like it's connected to people who are like his acting is so bad. But to me, it feels clear that, like, I mean, Kubrick, like, made him walk through the door, like, a hundred times. I think he got every shot that he wanted to get.
0: Uh-huh.
2: And, you know, and, like, the idea that there's anything accidental about any, any shot or scene or, like, expression in his face seems, like, just not correct, But at the same time, like, I don't know. I do think that it has to do with, like, the cultural mood of the time. And that's why people read it that way. And, like, it's impossible to imagine. Like, think about it. If, like, Epstein had just, if this was in the news, like, the year that (laughs) Eyes Wide Chat came out, like, it was a different conversation it would have been. Although, like, of course it was happening then.
0: That's Right. Well, one of the things I just love about your piece, Lila, is that, it, I mean, not only do you make all these points, which I find so insightful, but it's it's a great piece about like, you know, I'm being slightly cautionary about like, well, it's anniversary time. Is this dated or is it not? Um, It's kind of like a it's a nice there's some reminders to check ourselves. And I wonder when you read those those critics in, in 99 doing that innocence, naivete, conflation, I kind of can't help but feel that we we are. Always do the same thing I mean I'm sure we do it on this podcast Where I or Noah will say like Well through a 2019 lens As though like that's euphemistic for The ultimate cutting edge of Sexual politics or something like do you feel There are ways And maybe it relates to the Epstein Case there are ways that we Talk about sex now that we Take for granted as being like very contemporary And very now that In a minute like you could turn around or we could all turn around and write pieces about like what a misbegotten sense of yourself and of the time and look at the thing you were ignoring.
2: Yes, I definitely think so. I mean, just in the past like three years, like almost every movie has been reappraised. Right. (laughs) Like, and mostly not, you know, not in good ways necessarily. Uh, Like, I feel like, it's very common now to have a movie that like five years ago, like seemed funny. And now you look at it and you're like, wow, this movie is like totally sexist and totally racist. Um, and I can't believe it got rave reviews when it came out, you know, I feel like, and, 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 and and, and, like, that's not even, you know, 20 years. Right. Right. So I, I do feel like we're like constantly, reappraising things and also constantly feeling like well right now is the perspective that you know now we're right about things
0: (laughs) (laughs) maybe it's just the righteousness that's the thing that like i mean we can't jump into the future of course but it is like for some reason we're still like yep it's now now is the right way to do that when you know we all know like as an intellectual exercise that like that's silly you shouldn't be so sure
2: definitely and I definitely yeah. think, I mean, it's also funny just reading. I mean, I've been reading reactions, obviously, to my story.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Um, and, uh, you know, there are like Reddit threads, all these men being like, what a naive take. <laughs> uh, she didn't say uh-huh. what it was about at all. <laughs> like, well, that's interesting. Sure. Um, <laughs> sure. But like, even right now, in this moment, there are still like, uh, you know like uh, lots of people on the internet who still think that, you know, that, that, that that this read is like some sort of anti-male, like naive, like misunderstanding of the movie. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. If the, if the theme of the movie is like, don't, for God's sake, don't choose to not know in your real life. I was thinking about like, so that's, if that's what we were working with in 1999, today, you know, we can self-select ignorance in more literal senses than ever. Um, you know, we can literally click the X button on not knowing something. And I wonder, do you feel like the the theme that you took away from this movie, um, is it fair to call it a moral? Could we call it cautionary? Or when you watch a movie like Eyes Wide Shut, is it just sort of, do we have to stop it at dark, at dark meditation, what can we, like, actually walk out of the room with?
2: I mean, I think about, like, what is the phrase eyes wide shut, you know, come from? You know, it's like that, um, the, I think it's the Masonic saying, like, my eyes are shut to your misdeeds, brother. Okay. And, you know, so, I mean, to me, the, the moral is, like, don't live like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Although, like, I will say, like, when I'm watching it again and again, like, I'm not like, I, it's not like that moral, like, hits you. Over, it's not like you're being hit over the head with it. Like, I think the ending is, like, kind of ambiguous. So, For sure. You know, and that's also what's, like, so great about it. Like, it's a very, you know, I mean, I do see it as a fairy tale, and it doesn't really have a, a sharp, you know, a sharp ending, you know, to that. It's more like the old pre-Disney kind of fairy tale where it's yeah. like, here's this like story of this like wild night and the sort of, you know, diminishment that follows, um, you know, from, from this adventure.
0: Well, Lila, everyone should go read your piece on uh, vulture. I also have been loving your, your literary lunch installments. Those are amazing. I bet they're also really fun to write and execute. Is that fair? (laughs) They are very fun. (laughs) Um, But yeah, where can people, uh, where can people find you? You're on the tweets, right?
2: Uh, Yes. I, I, I occasionally tweet um, at Lila Pearl um, and uh, yeah. And then on, on Vulture and and New York Magazine.
0: All right. Well, uh, such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for um, being just absurdly
2: well-schooled on this strange, strange film. Well, thank you so much for uh, indulging my obsession. Uh, right. I literally couldn't talk about this movie enough.
0: <laughs> cool. We are going to now talk about 1966's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? So the couple in question here uh, was known to the world In a time before those uh, terrible portmanteaus, simply as Liz and Dick.
2: (laughs) It's easy
1: to talk about Warner Brothers' new motion picture, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? It's hard to
2: tell about it. Easy to talk about. All you have to say is Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton.
1: (laughs) Who's Afraid of Virginia (laughs) Woolf? (laughs)
2: He's the associate professor of history. She's his wife. The essence of Ivy League charm to students and friends who don't know them well. George Siegel, Sandy Dennis,
1: are the newcomers led by their charming host and hostess to the hell that hides behind those Ivy-clad university walls.
0: (laughs) So this one... Doesn't sort of doesn't perfectly fit um, the category because this is not the end of their relationship If anything, it's closer to the beginning And they also have a different relationship than these other people Because instead of it being these weird kind of, you know, flawless bookends to their relationship uh, Burton and Taylor worked together 10 times officially They just liked being in movies together, I gather Um, And sort of became this kind of couple's package for the studio system at the time.
1: Absolutely. But I do think this movie is part of this genre because you bring with you to the theater this idea of, oh, this is a famous couple portraying a couple. Yes. And reading interviews with the both of them from when this movie came out it seems like their dynamic was, like, not far away, including, like, the rampant alcohol abuse uh, that's contained within George and Martha on screen.
0: Right. Yeah, it kind of... It's the Urtex. It teaches us, like, how to do this pod category today, is 1966's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf.
1: Absolutely. So does everyone know the... A show of hands, who knows the plot of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Well, Chance is raising his hand, so I think that's everybody. Uh, If you don't know, we have George and Martha who are academics. Well, George is an academic in the history department. He is not the history department. He's in the history department. Um, And he's married to Martha, who is the daughter of the president of the university. And they are just getting home from the father-slash-president's house, from a party where they've consumed too much alcohol. And in some, at some moment in the party, they said to uh, this other couple, Nick and honey, that mm-hmm. you guys should come over after the party for like one last drink. Oh my God. And so at two o'clock in the morning, Nick and honey show up and they proceed to do fucking battle. Yeah. Both linguistically intellectually (laughs) emotionally career wise everything what was your what are you saying sexually oh sexually don't forget the sexual battle i've forgotten that part of course it's based on this absurdist play but it's sometimes like where it's scary is when it's not absurdist it's just fucking like devastating
0: it's just a horror movie of like imagining like Can I get out of that house? Because that is a haunted house.
1: Right. This movie, and I think all three of them, are all very stagey. I mean, this one, because it's based on the famous play, Mm -hmm. which uh, only takes place... This movie, they go out a little bit, but in the play, it's just in George and Martha's living room the whole time.
0: I think part of where that comes from, though, is that time becomes a very mysterious artifice in all of these, much the way it would... In a But time play. is important
1: in all of these Yeah totally Like the first one is 36 hours This is between 2 o'clock and sunrise um, And by the sea is like 2 or 3 weeks or something
0: But the days, hours, conversations Blend together in a way that you start to feel like I understand the totality of this relationship And that these people have just slid Like they've just, you know Momentum has carried them to the place that they are now You get that in watching all three of these.
1: Absolutely. And there's... I mean, you're seeing actors at the top of their game. Like Elizabeth Taylor's unbelievable Richard Burton. Incredible.
0: So yeah, I feel like the real-life parallel here, in addition to all the ones that you just drew quite well, is that, you know, she could be quite boisterous. Richard was an alcoholic. And they go on to scandalize Nick and Honey in this movie the same way they would have audiences... Who had never seen people talk like this in like a mainstream American movie?
1: Oh yeah, this movie was like banned and like was almost not released because of its its rating. Yeah, it was one of the first times that they introduced the concept of having a parental guardian take you to a film.
0: And can you imagine? The lines are great. If if you existed, I might thinking I might think of divorcing you is is really something to say yeah. to one's uh, failure allegedly, of a husband. Um, Certainly.
1: And all these, like, great Richard Burton, like, drunken asides where, you know, like, him and Honey, who's, like, been blacked out for hours now, sitting next to him at the bar that they end up at, um, and Nick and Martha are dancing, and Honey's just kind of like, they dance like they've danced before. And George, that's missing a beat, goes, it's a familiar dance, monkey nipples. They both know it.
0: I would say the phrase "plow a few pertinent wives" is burned in my memory forever.
1: That's great.
0: But then there is like there is this mysterious element. Like you come to all of these movies as a voyeur, right? As like a cinematic voyeur and like a pop culture voyeur and all these different things. And you're like, what? What is the significance of that? And sometimes when these movies at their best, they don't tell you. Like the Bergen anecdote that Richard Burton, that George tells about the you know, the boy who couldn't say bourbon. That's maybe him. That's maybe an invention of the game. And I feel like the fact that the movie like has its twist, but it's not like, not everything was part of the twist. Not everything was like the, you know, the writing on the top, on the bottom of the usual suspect's cup. Um, that you're like, yeah, I, I get these people now, but like, but but do I? You always have that leftover question.
1: Certainly. And like each game and like each thing that they're playing it's unclear like how much of it is for our benefit as the audience as you say like as a voyeur looking through that people and how much of it because in this one in particular there is like another couple playing off of them right you're never sure like what's for our benefit and what's for their benefit because they seem to be pretty easily you know, they, like, whack, like like shake it off like a dog does, and, like, they're totally fine. Yeah. You know, after something that any other couple would see as, like, a totally devastating thing to say.
0: Sure. I forgot about the... I think Nick is, like, a... was a high school quarterback in Illinois or something, and later on, in the midst of a venomous roll of words, Richard Burton says, you know, he was Pan-Kansas swimming champion or something.
2: Right. <laughs> Which is very
0: good. Um... Do you ever feel like, because I guess I'm implying that I do, that the acting gets crispy? That by today's standards, or maybe any standard, that this is overacting?
1: I think when people say like this movie is an example of great acting, I think what they mean is this movie is an example where it's easy to point out to people what acting is.
0: That's a good way to put it.
1: You know, and I think they have a fucking juicy script to work with and of these course. like great lines. And I think they have a really good director who keeps them from like just jumping out one of the glass windows. But did, did we say it was, N- Nich- 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 it was Mike Nichols? It's Mike first Nichols, movie? yeah. R.I.P. Mike Nichols. Um
0: <laughs> keeping them from jumping out the glass windows. Yeah. These is people who like, you know, Brando showed up ten years before and you know, Hollywood actors would be like, wait, acting can be that I <laughs> can be that raw. I want a, I want a bite of that bloody steak.
1: Right. And this is just like sort of where that moment climb, like culminates and maybe gets a little stale. Just sure. the proverbial shark jump.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I don't know if this is the shark jump, but yeah, they're at the but end it's of the
1: most p- noticeable when you like go back and look at the movies that are sort of like pre-Mumble Cory 1970s, like people barely speaking to each other. Sure. Like it's amazing how much of a script, Eyes Wide Shut, and By the Sea, by contrast, don't have. It
0: works better when both George and Martha hide the dagger. Um, the first scene where they come home and you don't know that uh that Nick and Honey are coming over, and they just kind of spar, and she's just like, What a dump! and she's quoting the Betty Davis movie, and she's like, What is it from? What is it from? What is it from? I found myself, uh, you know, kind of flattened by that. I was like, this can't all be this way, can it? Um, And I think that some of Martha's dialogue when it's at like its most feverish pitch, the sad, sad, sad speech, famous as it is, like doesn't quite do it for me. Cause that you can feel the like, and this is where the hush would fall over the theater where she says, sad, sad, sad. It's much better when it's a movie, when he shows back up and he's like, uh, what does he say? Floros de Muertos. It's like, you know, like flowers for like our, for our, our dead couple or our son, whoever they're for. And then you see their body language turn like, you know, armies marshalling in the field toward Nick of like, oh, Nick, you thought this, you thought we were done? You thought like you were the going to rule this roost now? Like this is a game we play all the time it's best when it's cinematic and that's credit to Mike Nichols and these two great film actors.
1: But that, that final scene there that the whole movie, the whole movie and slash play is building to, is like pretty hammy. Yeah. You know, same, because I mean, that's just also, unfortunately the product of it being such a canonical work is like, like you obviously, if you've been to a, like a high school English class, you know that like the baby's not real, you know, that the kid's not real. So it, like, kind of takes away that... It's my old theory that, like, I would have enjoyed the Gone Girl movie better if I hadn't read the Gone Girl book.
0: Sure, of course. I think the movie is the best when it is just, like these movies today, like about marriage. The way you see them do the kind of slow, kind of doddering walk out of the party just kind of made me think, before we'd even met these people... About This kind of construction in the same way that Kubrick so brilliantly shows us that that shot at the beginning where they walk into the great hall of the of the party and like everyone is you know slow dancing in the Victorian style with each other and he's just like ah look at us all couples there shall be no problems here all the world a couple (laughs) and this movie kind of has that thing that makes you think like wait why do we arrange this our lives this way. We're eventually, like, we're just alone with this person for decade after decade. Well, it ultimately
1: becomes, like, one of the most famous cinematic breakdowns of an American marriage, of, like, here are the reasons we got married, and now we're just going to make fun of it until one of us dies. Mm -hmm. And it's sad, like, the things that you measure a marriage's success by, it's the power that we have, the money that we bring in collectively, and then ultimately it boils down to, like, what is our lineage here? And if you don't have a child, like, it's almost like you're not even how are you contributing? How are you even alive now if ultimately you will be gone and everyone who knows you will be dead?
0: We're going to talk about By the Sea in a second, but I want to pick up on that point you just made. Do you think that that as a theme like, works very well
1: today? Each one of these movies is an artifact of not just the actors who were in them, but of the union that these movies represent. Mm -hmm. So to watch Eyes Wide Shut or to watch Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or or, or to watch By the Sea is to not just rate them as films, not just to rate them by the performances each actor gave, but to sort of keep in that time capsule this relationship that is ultimately at the core both for the characters, but also for the actors on screen.
0: Right. Yeah, that's true. You definitely have to accept some of their artifactness. I guess I just I want to go back to the beginning where you're like, well she well he's a professor but she's not. It is kind of like the okay, so what is she? She's just like a drunk who's at home all day. I think we're in for for today's read, we're in interesting and maybe negative territory when we have a woman whose defining characteristic is not being able to have a baby.
1: Well, there's. I mean, that's so prevalent in this genre,
0: right? But I think it's unfortunate
1: because it tra- is it traumatic doesn't... as that can still be for people. That's
0: not all there is to people to women,
1: right? Especially in 2019. I mean, I'm not gonna hold this movie up to the candle of like, oh, right. how does it feel about feminism? Right? Because it's like it was made in 1966 by most, mostly men, yeah, mostly white men. Sure. This movie, I think, I mean. Don't at me, but I think it's a good bad I'm 100% with you
0: I, um, you know, I was writing down line after line that I was interested in I I especially, like, loved the Burton performance And I think what, like, Liz Taylor's mostly doing here Especially compared to the rest of her work, to be frank Is quite, quite good um, But it's just like a steamroller of a movie Like, at the end of it A it very was...
1: slow steamroller
0: yeah and I'm trapped under it as right. it like breaks my bones one by one. I mean, the exhale that I let out at the end of this movie was, it's like, oh my God, you know, as taxing as any Holocaust drama,
1: <laughs> to be frank. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're just seeing people hurt each other for hours and hours and hours. Yeah. Um, and some of it's great when he says, and
0: that's how you play. Get the guests um, is a great kind of uh You know, letting the air out of the balloon after the end of that crazy roadhouse scene. Which also, I I don't want to let this pass without maybe handing out the superlative. Is this the drunkest movie ever? They are already drunk before it starts.
1: Yeah. And then they all have... I mean, the amount of drinks they have per hour is pretty incredible. It seems they need to have, like, three or four or five drinks an hour. Yeah. In order to, like, keep their... Whatever it is going.
0: Right. Um I'm right with you. It's a good bad. Uh so glad I finally caught a classic movie that's like a stupid blind spot for me to have. Um, but like no. I think you could I think you could read the play and get all the good stuff without being taxed by this sort of dated style of acting and just the two hours of people screaming.
1: I, yeah, I wonder who you would – like, who would you put in this camp that would be able to play these kinds of roles today? Like, do you think if you had, like, a Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman and or Brad Pitt and Angelina, like, doing these roles, like, would they w- – what would happen? None, <laughs> what
0: would it look like? None of them could do the dialogue. Um, none of those specific people. I think – well, and this is an interesting question, right, because this play is recast for the stage – over and over and over by actors, you know, right? I don't know. I think that Fassbender would be very scary. As uh, but let's we gotta cast Martha.
1: I think Fassbender and Jennifer Lawrence.
0: Jennifer Lawrence could do it because she has a deep enough, loud enough voice.
1: But she's too young to do it now. She could give her the Liz Taylor treatment. You give her the Liz Taylor treatment. Did you see
0: the thing where Albie he wanted James Mason and Betty Davis to do it? James Mason. That would be just unbearable. The only thing harder to take than what ended up on screen would be a super mannered version of it.
1: Martha, (laughs) another drink.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it would be similar to *By the Sea* in the the sense. In the sense of like. (laughs) are these people just too drowsy to stay married? We are now at the by the sea stage of this podcast in our lives and in the order of the movies.
1: Let's set the stage here. So this movie has, uh, what starts with, you know, a movie is going to be good when it starts with the 1975 universal intro. Right. And then of course we, you know, that fades in and we're in 1975, uh, in France. And South they're driving France. around in this little sports car. They're two Americans. They get out. They see a bar. They're like, hey, what's up? Brad Pitt speaks a little French. Angelina Jolie as Vanessa or Nessa. Of course, Brad Pitt is Roland. What that's, a goofy name, Roland. You can't. That's not a Brad this Pitt movie character. This movie like, wants to be based on a Graham Greene book so badly, but like isn't. And it has all these, like, weird problems with, like, why would you, like, Angelina Jolie Pitt, you wrote this, you wrote the scripts. Yeah. Like, why doesn't the wife speak French? Like, why is the husband character the only uh, sort of seemingly cultured, sort of driven, loving person on screen, even from the outset? Yeah. But we'll get back to that. So they check into this beautiful, albeit a little drab, hotel, fancy hotel right on the water there
0: by the sea one might say,
1: I don't know if it's by the sea. We were texting about this earlier. It seems more like a river, like an inlet. I mean, you can see the sea, but it's not, how far does the preposition by stretch by the sea? Mm. I, I live in Brooklyn, like three miles away from the, from Coney Island. Am I by the sea? Is this a story about my relationship? Maybe.
0: Do you keep the do you keep the shades drawn for no reason?
1: Every morning I watch the man canoe his way down Ocean Avenue.
2: Are we ever gonna talk about it, Nessa? Do you hate me?
0: You know my reason. You want to hurt me? You're nothing. Hurt me.
2: More.
0: Ah.
2: Stop. It's the. Mm-hmm.
1: I had good feelings about this movie when they checked into the hotel. So, like, the them driving the car into town and whatever during this, like, hokey 1975 kind of title sequence, fine, I can get over that. And then they come into the hotel, they're checked into the hotel, they come in, and without speaking to each other, they start moving furniture around to accommodate their lifestyle. And I thought yep. that was so interesting. It's such an yeah. interesting physical direction to like give them. And I was like, huh, maybe this movie was just like a sleeper, you know, and there is something to be said about the way people live with each other. Yeah. Uh You know, I was willing to give it that. Can but I then- say, si- Go Before ahead. you keep going, I want to single
0: out one more thing. In the drive up, they're in an $80,000 car and he can't get the cigarette lighter to work. Even that is like a perfect metaphor for like... There's look a lot at lot good gl-
1: moments where he like can't seem to light a cigarette.
0: Look at this glossy, beautiful, perfect thing, but they can't get it to do what they want it to do.
1: The script itself is very like clunky. What can I do for you, my darling? Right. Kind um, of lines in there. Do you have something written down? I wrote down... He's like, "Oh, I didn't want to wake you. You
0: were sleeping so peacefully." And she says, "I don't sleep peacefully. You know that." And it is. Yeah, and then he's like, "I love you."
1: As he walks out the door, and she like waits till the door closes, and then she's like, "I
0: know." Yeah. (laughs) I texted you. Also, um, you know, he's trying to. The other thing is like they just they have no intimacy, right? So what ends up happening is that she just like stays in this hotel room, uh, reading and looking at the rowboat for. Weeks while he goes
1: and, <laughs> and tries, well, he to, just gets drunker and drunker. He just
0: goes downstairs and drinks all day. Um, but then eventually he's like, you know, I want our marriage to actually be a marriage. Like, I, I when I'm not, you know, pissed drunk, I want to try. And he has to get out the line uh, tonight. I'm gonna have a shower with my wife, as right. though that's like having dinner. It's like, what? Is this is a line. Zooming out, I think that this movie like could work as a short film if this were like fifteen minutes.
1: If this is the Hotel Chevalier from the lead into the Darjeeling Limited on the extended edition of uh, Wes Anderson's Darjeeling Limited DVD, yeah, it'd be great.
0: You only need five minutes to figure out what's going on with them, right? She is icy. He is drunk. He is not writing, and something happened.
1: But, that but is last, he a writer? Like they seem to have money, but like he's not successful. But then he doesn't try. Like I don't get who these people are. He wrote something once, but you know, you know
0: everything the movie needs you to know before the keyhole, kind of like sex stuff in five minutes. Right, but, but then like, there's like an, it's another a,
1: ninety minutes of it.
0: Brutal seventy to like to get to the point where they actually start being like, oh, this couple next door with melanie melanie laurent and whoever her guy is oh francois yeah and francois um (laughs) yeah uh it's just a lot it's a it's a good looking movie uh the writing is bad i think the acting is okay i think the directing is okay but it's just there's nothing like actively good about it and it's also just like nothing is i was texting you like they get invited sailing at one point, and I, like, please, for the love of God, accept the sailing invitation. So it's not another scene of Brad Pitt, like, falling down, gin-breathed into the door in the dark.
1: This movie, with a better idea, could be as captivating, a at least a set piece, as a Call Me By Your Name. Mm. But it's not even really that interested I mean, they, when they start going to restaurants, like, in the last 15 minutes and stuff, like, you sort of get into that cafe society of it all. Yeah. But that room is so boring. And that, like, goofy production design where, like, there's just a fucking hole, like, above a, a rusty old pipe that goes, like, right into the bedroom of the people next door. And, like, because this end table was there and this has never been noticed before. Yeah. Give me a fucking break.
0: Let's talk about how this reflects or doesn't, Brad and Angie, because I have kind of a wild theory. The twist of the movie, which you know there's a twist because there's just like bad kind of editing to
1: like, what is that? An embryo? Um, it's either like you think it's like bodies, and you think it. I thought it was like some sort of sexual trauma. It's just that she can't
0: have kids, and there's, she's barren. I'm barren. It devolves into this terrible moment where she's he says say, say you're barren And then she says it so many times um, <laughs> But this is after she has tried to get Francois to have sex with her While Brad Pitt is watching So Brad Pitt will stop it, maybe? So the movie becomes... You know, an indictment, or at least like explained by like this was all going so badly because she was like driven to do this terrible thing by the fact that she couldn't have a kid and she wanted one so bad.
1: So bad. But this is very weird. Single minded a purpose. This is very
0: weird in the Jolie Pitt read and very weird like in the movie. Because they are on such parallel paths of being unreachable fuck-ups in the movie. But her thing at the end is, like, really the thing. It really doesn't matter at all that he was wasted for half the movie and can't write. I mean, clearly Angelina, Angelina Jolie is the driving force behind this movie, right? It's her script. She directed it. I want you to be in it. She even told, she went on the record uh, and told, like, Tom Brokaw or something, We th- I want, it would be an interesting way to test our relationship. Um And so it's kind of like She made a movie where it's just like Come on baby Both of us are gonna put our shit on the table And I'll actually make the movie about my shit And we'll see if you like take the last Step And he didn't And then she divorced him And kept all the kids And then he eventually was just like Yeah I had to quit drinking and using pot Because that was like a problem
1: Um yeah, but there's that, like that, some thing that happened on a private plane once that no one will talk about.
0: But that's like my wild read on the movie is like she ma- like she basically was like, we're going to do couples therapy in this movie and we're going to inch up to the end. And then I'll like, I'll lay it out. I'll be like, this is maybe my one of my problems, even though why would that be a problem of hers in real
1: life? But then the movie's not about his problem. A celebrity that has famously adopted like quite a few children, but also had her own biological children. What a weird, like, almost anti-feminist read on this character. Right. Like, why not give Brad, like, a little bit more, like, shit that, like, he's trying to fix and he doesn't know how to do it? I think it makes a better movie if it's a movie about, can this couple get over whatever break in trust they had? And that is where we find this other couple getting involved because, like, the voyeurism is what brings them back together. Right. But ultimately, this is a movie about like, yeah, a lady who's sad that she can't have kids, but like so sad as to excuse like a lot of bad behavior in a way that like doesn't make her look very good.
0: It's a failure of a movie and like a failure of whatever this cinematic couples therapy thing. Right, because then they
1: were divorced eighteen months later. Right,
0: I talked to so. Sarah, my girlfriend, who's a therapist, and has been actually doing, like, little couples therapy for the first time recently, like, conducting it. I definitely, like, asked her about this. Like, I've got to get your take on this. Her diagnosis is that these are signs of, like, insecure attachment. That these are, like, baby, let's go back to where we started. Or let's try to get through this by never being apart. By, like, making every part of our life, like, our whole life. Which is kind of weird if you think about the normal, like, Hollywood, like, fling or divorce They're kind of typified by like never seeing each other, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, they're either, I think that's, that's totally smart Is you have the ones that are always together and the ones that are doing so much, they like never see each other.
0: Right. Um, And then the other interesting thing that Sarah said is that couples therapy has such a lower success rate than individual therapy due to the timing is that people just come to couples therapy too late they come like having already been through a crisis. And I think that's kind of what you see, especially in by the sea where it's like, we've been together for a decade. Clearly like some stuff is wrong. Like, why don't we make a grand gesture of it?
1: Well, it's also very telling that they like shot it ostensibly right after they got married. It was their honeymoon. Yeah. And it wasn't just like, a big production that they got attached to like she wrote and directed it yeah it's not like richard burton wrote who's afraid of virginia wolf <laughs> no. so like tom cruise or nicole gibbon directed eyes wide shut yeah like In some this place- is also not only a like a yeah very insecure position on relationships it's also like very pretentious to say that like you have any great wisdom when if anything you're in a relationship that is um, about to hit the iceberg
0: yeah so let's rate by the sea I actually think this one's pretty easy bad bad
1: this one is a bad bad yeah it's gets it gets some style points and like of course all the nice reviews that I read about this movie was like oh, the sh- it's such beautifully shot. It's such a beautiful cinematography. And it's like, okay. Of that's <laughs> the, the only most beautiful thing place nice in you can find about this movie. Um, but yeah, this movie's a bad, bad. It's super long. It's super boring. It's super indulgent. And then like the whatever twist slash sexual thriller this movie had going for it, like it totally cops out at the ends. In like a kind of frustrating, kind of, not that, yeah, not that, like, a little bit problematic, I would say. Well? You want to get married, big guy? I do, and I think we should have kids right
0: away <laughs> to
1: make sure immediately
0: that we stay together.
1: <laughs> I'm carrying a vial of blood around with me all the time. Whose blood? Uh, you're, uh, yours, I think. I've never given you my blood. Uh, not well you you, not that you know of
0: well folks if you want to you know tweet or instagram comment your review of julie or shanghai surprise at us like please feel free Uh, i was gonna
1: watch shanghai surprise and do it as like a homework assignment but i found it reprehensible and had to turn it off it's on hulu for free
0: all right But as always, thanks for listening to the show. You can find most of our shows on the playlist.net and the Playlist Podcast Network, which you can get on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, wherever you get your shows. Uh, BeRealPodcast.com is your spot for the complete archives, as well as a little bit of writing here and there. Um, Yeah, we're going to keep it rolling this summer. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to our peeps. Thanks to you, Noah.
1: Hey, thanks to you, bud. Let's not fight.
0: That's not fight. All right. We won't. Our relationship's perfect. This podcast is a testament to it.
1: Yes, just as long as you acknowledge that I come up with all the good genres. Oh, no. See you next time.